morning, church. Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. We'll read together, starting at verse 11 through the end of the second chapter. The word of God says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we come together this morning into the presence of your holy word, and we ask, Lord God, that we would be sanctified by it. We thank you that your holiness doesn't undo us, but builds us up. I pray this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would allow me to clearly communicate what you have for us in your word as your new covenant people. For any in the hearing of your word this morning that, that might struggle to understand, might you open their ears? open their eyes, that they might come to know the peace and the salvation offered only through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. By now, everyone is familiar that as a church, this church preaches God's word in an expositional manner. We preach the portion of scripture that God has laid out for us, and we preach it unapologetically. As I prepared and, and looked through this text, I, I came across the words circumcision and uncircumcision. I got a little nervous. I'm like, this is a tough one. I'm going to have to pass the buck for a lot of dads to explain this when they get home to their kids. And as I began to continue the study, I realized that the topic that I have to deal with this morning is actually a lot harder than that one. The topic that, that Paul wants to bring to our attention this morning through the text that we'll look at is that of racism, that of how we ought to understand races and race equality and all that through a biblical lens. This church is probably never going to do a series on how to respond to, to CRT, right? But this morning, we're going to look at BRT, biblical race truth. What is it that Christ wants us to understand about how to minister and how to live out the unity that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So we'll begin at, at verse 11 today, and the first thing that we find is Paul says, therefore. That means we have to retreat just a little bit and see what we've learned so far. What have we learned so far? Well, through chapter 1, we know that we had this, this beautiful doxology, this explanation that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has predestined his people. He has elected his people, and he has bought his people with his blood. In the more immediate context, in chapter 2, we learned that all of the church are in the same boat. They're all under Adam's covenant. Verse 1 tells us, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. Whether you were of the Jewish people and you'd had the law, or you were of the Gentile people and you didn't have the law, you're in the same boat, dead, separated from God. You have the same problem. And Paul continues to, to go on to give the good news in verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, gave us life, new life in Christ. That's what Paul wants us to understand as we come to this next section. Verse 11, with all of that having been said, we're all under Adam, we're all in Adam, we're all sentenced to death, we're sentenced to separation from God, but then there's the good news. But Paul wants to address how this truth ought to be transforming the church of Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. So there's a couple of things we need to understand as we move into this. First of all, we need to understand what the word Gentile is. This is the first time we've run into the word Gentile in the book of Ephesians. But if we, we look at it, it's a word that literally translated means peoples. Peoples sounds funny to say, right? Look at all those peoples out there. It doesn't sound like peoples should be a plural word, but it is. In the ESV translation, the word peoples is used over 229 times in the Bible. And it's meant to explain that it's a group of people, tribes, races. Guess who created the peoples? Well, God did. He created all of them, starting with Adam. Scripture gives us accounts of how he created all these peoples. He gave them different ethnicities. He gave them different languages. And one of the examples of how we find the word peoples used is in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. God begins to, to call out of all of these people one particular people group. And he says to them, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This is what God did supernaturally in his perfect plan to pull out a subset of all the peoples that he made so that he might bring hope to all the peoples. Now, the people of Israel got this wrong. They understood that they had been given special privileges, that they then had a, a special opportunity to speak in a derogatory manner of those who were not of their group. This is what Paul is saying when he uses the term here, those who are called the uncircumcision. He's, in a tongue-in-cheek way, referring to a racial slur of the day. To say that this group of people was uncircumcised was to say that they were unclean, was to say that they were outsiders. How would you like to be called? The unclean outsider. 
But that's what Paul says. You guys were unclean and outsiders. But let's keep context in mind for just a minute. We learned in Acts chapter 19 together that Paul shows up in Ephesus. He spends his first three weeks in Ephesus preaching where? In the synagogues. The first that would come to faith in the city of Ephesus were Jewish believers. It didn't take very long for the the Jewish leaders to expel Paul from the synagogue, and then he would go daily to the hall of Tyrannus and preach to the Gentiles. So from the very beginning of the, the church in Ephesus, something incredible is happening. God is bringing together those who had fled Jerusalem of Jewish descent and those who were Gentiles, and he starts bringing them in to one group of people. It sounds like it should all be happily ever after, right? No, we have this this racial division that's still happening in the church. The church library was uh, given a new book this week, pretty excited. It's going to be checked out for a few weeks, so don't rush over there to check it out just yet, Um, perhaps later. But in this book, John Stott gives an explanation of what the, the sentiment was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And we often hear and think of how the, the Jews have been a persecuted people, but, but guess what? In Paul's day, the racism went both ways. Listen to what John Stott says. He says, but we need to remember that in calling Abraham, he promised through his descendants to bless all of earth's people. And that in choosing Israel, he intended her to become a light to the nations or the peoples. The tragedy is that Israel forgot her vocation, twisted her privilege into favoritism, and ended by heartily despising, even detesting the Gentiles. He goes on to quote another scholar that says, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be the fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel and all the other nations that he, of, of all the other nations that he made. It was not even lawful for them to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be bringing another Gentile into the world. This is an incredible animosity and a hatred that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And that didn't just all of a sudden go away as the church becomes one new group of people. And so for that reason, Paul lays forth this vivid and powerful admonition of what the church ought to look like. Now, before we go on any further, we now understand that there's this animosity that existed outside the church that had infiltrated the church, but let's consider who's delivering this message. God's using Paul. Paul was of this called out group of people. He refers to himself an Israelite of the Israelites, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day. But, But look at Paul's call to ministry. Paul himself loved identified with, and was given a ministry to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 14, Paul explains about his ministry to the Gentiles. He says, beginning at verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. 
Paul's ministry, take the gospel not to his own people, the people of Israel, but to the Gentiles. That's what we see him doing in Ephesus. He's in the hall of Tyrannus. He's proclaiming the gospel. In another passage that we'll look at just briefly, Galatians chapter two, we see Paul taking a ministry approach that's clearly cross-cultural. He does a little bit of a, a divide and conquer with Peter and his other Jewish brothers in terms of to whom they would direct the hope of the gospel. Beginning at verse seven of Galatians two, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that is the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This was God's unique plan for Paul, a Jew of the Jews, called cross-culturally to take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those of the nations, to those of the peoples. In Colossians chapter four, we see Paul talking about the fact that he had two brothers who were Jewish that were with him that provided him with some comfort, but everyone else that he surrounded himself with were Gentiles. He immersed himself cross-culturally for the sake of the gospel. Now, lest we think that Paul is our example to follow here, we know that Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So the ultimate example of seeing Christ cross these barriers is seen in, in his condescension in human form. He came to those who were not like him. He came to those who were unholy, who were imperfect, who were separated from the Father, and he proclaimed a saving gospel. In John chapter four, we see that Christ not only condescended to, to share the gospel with humanity, but he himself, being of the line of Abraham, of the line of David, takes the gospel to the Gentiles. We find the encounter of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were a, a crossbreed between Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews treated them in a very demeaning manner, as we know. But Jesus was compelled to, to go to Samaria and to share and to preach the message of salvation. In verse 9, we won't read the whole passage, we know it well, but I want to call out a couple of things so that we understand Christ's example crossing these, these, racial, these racial barriers. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? And John adds parenthetically, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, right? And then she goes on and Jesus explains to her that, that he is the living water. He is the means by which she can understand salvation from God. Skipping ahead just a bit, to uh, verse 19, Jesus explains that he knows she's had five husbands before. He understands intimately her sins and, and her separation from God. And the woman responds and says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This is an important distinction. I want you to keep this in mind as we move through the, the remainder, remainder of chapter two of Ephesians. This is a, a talk about where is permissible worship? The Samaritans, those who were 
mixed with the Gentiles, weren't allowed to worship in Zion. They weren't allowed to go to the temple, so they worshiped on their mountain in Samaria. And she says, well, you Jews have the privilege of worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, we're not talking about you worshiping over there and you worshiping over there. We're talking about something entirely different. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Notice, not for the Jews, from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Moving down to verse 39, we see the response to Christ delivering this gospel message. It says that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what he said, because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that indeed, this is the Savior of the world. Isn't that remarkable? The, the faith that they came to have from spending that time with Christ. They invited him to stay for, for two days, and we see this, and Paul copies that example. And we're called to copy that example, to live in, in close contact with those who are not like us with the message of the gospel. An application for this, if we think about how God has uniquely wired, of us, wired us, some of us have a, a proclivity to learn other languages. Some of us have a desire to identify with other cultures. This is of the Lord and for the purposes of expanding his church. The incredible thing about living here in San Diego is that you don't have to go to the other side of the world to minister to cultures different than yours. They live next door to us. They work with us. They live in our neighborhoods. As Paul begins to lay this out, he says, hey, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh that were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, remember that you all were separated from Christ. Verse 2 of Ephesians, sorry, verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. Now, the word remember is inserted here by Bible translators because Paul's giving us yet another run-on sentence, right? We've already worked through one run-on sentence from Paul. We've got another one. So the word remember is added here so that we can follow what Paul's saying. He's saying, remember what you once were. You once were berated with racial insults. You were outsiders. You were dirty. And then he goes on to tell them it was actually worse than that, right? He says in verse 12, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, the message of Christ, the message of Messiah, God chose to deliver through the people of Israel. The Gentiles were secondhand recipients of that message, or so they thought. He also says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The word alienated is an interesting word, and I want you to tuck this into your mind for just a minute here, because the antonym of alienated is reconciled. And we're going to see that word together. Before you were set aside, 
then you were brought near. And that's what the good news that we're going to get to. But we have to understand that Paul is explaining that they were outside of Israel and that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, we won't go through all of the, the details of the covenants of promise, but it's important for us to review a few. First of all, the covenant of Adam, they were all under that covenant. All separated from God under the wages of sin, which is death. But there's other covenants that God gave to his people. We have the covenant of Abraham. And the Jews love to talk about that, right? We have, as our father Abraham, through his offspring, we have promise. Paul explains lovingly and firmly that they understood that wrong. That promise that God gave wasn't just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. See, these covenants of promise, Paul wants them to understand that they weren't strangers to those covenants of promise. Those covenants of promise were actually for all of the peoples. The Mosaic covenant. We know that God used Moses to give the law. Could his people keep the law? No. They failed. So God ultimately fulfills the promise by sending the one who would be the law keeper, the sinless son of God, come himself to keep the law perfectly so that salvation would be offered not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Just uh, one more quick example. I understand some of the ladies this week talked about the, the covenant that God made with with Aaron, with the priests. In the book of Malachi, we see God restating the covenant that he made with Aaron, with Levi. He says, my covenant with you was a covenant of life and peace. And you feared me. And you faithfully instructed the people with what I said. But then, they exercised their priestly office with partiality with sin, with corruption. And God says, I'm going to curse your blessings. In fact, I've already cursed them. I'm, I'm cutting you off from this blessing. It wasn't long after that that the priestly line all but disappears. God's people were, were punished. But we know that in the new covenant, Peter says that the priestly line has been restored again. And the priestly line now includes a group of people that weren't just the Jews. Say, so you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, called out of darkness to proclaim his light. Amen? That's what we see as Paul's talking about, you are strangers to the covenant. He's saying that tongue in cheek. They were all strangers to the covenant, Jew or Gentile. Same boat, same problem, all the way across the board. And that takes us to the new covenant. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 8. This particular passage is the longest single citation of the Old Testament found in the New Testament. The, the, the preacher, the author of Hebrews, lays out for us the new covenant. And he tells us that 
there were some problems with the previous covenants, those covenants of promise. The promise wasn't with God. The promise was his people's inability to follow the conditions set forth. And this wasn't a surprise to God. God wasn't like, well, I guess that plan didn't work out. We're going to have to send another covenant. No, he knew from the beginning that his people called out of all the other peoples would fall short. And that because of that, he would have to show his mercy. Show his mercy first to, to that group of people and then to all the peoples. So this passage we're going to read together helps us understand that. We're going to begin at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 8. For if that covenant, referring collectively to the covenants of promise, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he fault, finds fault with it when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And I will put my law in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and, they will, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All the shortcomings of the people of Israel, all of their iniquities, all of their sins, covered over through this new covenant, through Jesus Christ. To understand this, all this setup is to prepare us to understand what Paul's going to gloriously proclaim for us in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see what he's doing here? He starts out with, therefore, remember. And then he says, remember again. And now he's going to tell you, but now. If there's one thing that human beings like, it's a before and an after story. Don't we love that? You ever seen those late night ads where there's somebody who's kind of got a, a little bit bigger physique and they take some sort of incredible vitamin and afterwards they look like they could appear on a magazine cover? You see this huge transformation, right? And, and don't we love to hear about a slave trader turned hymn writer who writes amazing words like, I once was lost and now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And Paul says, you guys were dead. And you've been made alive in Christ. This is the transformation that the gospel produces in us individually. And, and importantly, Paul wants us to understand that this is going to change things collectively. There has to be a before and an after. Before we go into how this is accomplished, I want to make sure we're perfectly clear in what Paul is saying with those who are far off and those who are near. He's using words like we read in the book of Isaiah today, that the Jewish people understood. Those who were far off were far foreigners, those not from around here, right? And, and those who are near are the Jewish people. And the gospel makes it perfectly clear that we were all far off. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Numbers. Numbers 15, not number 15, Numbers 15. 
And we have a portion of the law where God lays out guidelines for his people and for those who live in the midst of his people. Just to survey this chapter, a number of times you see this pattern. For example, in verse 15 of Numbers 15, he says, you and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. There's not this distinction for God. But importantly, in verse 29 of Numbers 15, God's law says this, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. You see that one law, the same law for both, the foreigners living in the midst of the camp. This is uh, during a period of time when the people of Israel had come up out of Egypt. They're heading towards the promised land. There's foreigners in the mix. There are those who, who obeyed the, the calling to come up. They wandered with them, and God says the law is the same for, for all of you. Same predicament. Verse 30 says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. Stop there for a second, because I never heard that expression. It sounds like it's from a Western movie, right? He does something with a high hand. NASB comes in a little handy once in a while, right? And, and he, it's, the translation there says, any, anyone who does something defiantly with a high hand is to do something defiantly. It's not like this is a, oh, well, sorry, I didn't know. This is, no, don't touch that, and you touch it anyway. No trespassing, and you go anyway. And so this law here says, but the person who does anything defiantly or with a high hand, whether he's native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And pay attention to this. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off and his iniquity should be on him. You see that? Level playing field. Sojourner, Israelite. Anyone who defies God's law willfully reviles the Lord and will be cut off. Who among us hasn't blatantly disobeyed God? Who among us hasn't taken God's law and said, you know what, actually, that seems good for everybody else, but mm, it doesn't apply to me. Or maybe we, we willfully go past something that the Holy Spirit's put on our heart. All of that separates us from God. And the consequences are grave. The consequences are eternal. The consequences should terrify us. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off and his iniquity should be on him. Paul's laying all of this out so that we would remember this bad news and that we would understand that God has provided one and only one means that our iniquity wouldn't be on us. And what is that? Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Only Christ and only the sacrifice of Christ can afford us forgiveness from our iniquity. On the contrary, we would be on our own, still far off. If you haven't accepted the fact that Christ is willingly and the single and only way for you to have salvation, you need to take this to heart. You need to understand this. You're in danger. 
You're still far off. You might think you're near because of your own good behavior. You might think you're near because you're a good person. You might think you're near because you do this or that or the other. But God's word is clear. We're all far off. But now in Christ Jesus, we're brought near from the blood of Christ. One more time in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, we, we understand from how the, the new covenants are explained that it is only the blood of Christ that allows us to be brought near to him, to be restored with him, and to have unity with him. We would otherwise be alienated from Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he, Christ Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. Since a death has recur- occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sin. That's it. An application there. We need to remember what we once were so that our boast would be in Christ alone. Like Paul tells the Jewish people, it's not because of your lineage. It's not because of your rule keeping. It's only because of Christ Jesus. We're made his people and nothing that we've done qualifies us. So Paul goes on going from this this bad news to this high note. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14 says, for he himself, referring to Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The verbiage now that that Paul begins to use requires us to understand context just a little bit. So we know that one of the marvels of the ancient world that was in the city of Ephesus was this temple to Diana. These Gentiles had understood that in response to the gospel, they needed to leave their idols behind. They needed to leave their sorcery behind. They needed to burn their books and step away from that temple. But now, they've got these these new people that they fellowship with, fellowship in air quotes, right, that are telling them of this incredible temple that was built back in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, also a modern wonder at that time, and people would come from throughout the Roman world to marvel at Herod's temple. And the Jewish people may have said something something to that, like, hey, that's where true worship happens. And these, these poor people are now well, we, we can't worship there because those are pagan gods and we want to worship the true God, but what do you mean? We don't have access to that temple. And even for the Jews in Ephesus, they were separated from that temple. And so Paul's going to go into detail and in helping us understand that they've got this temple worship thing all wrong. And it begins by understanding that through the cross, they break down this wall of hostility. Now, the, the wall of hostility requires us to understand that in Herod's temple, it was built by a Gentile to placate the Jews. Herod used the Jewish taxpayers' dollars to build this amazing temple, and he wanted to be able to show it off. But the Jews are like, wait a minute, this is our temple, and Gentiles can't come in here. So within the temple, there was a place for priests, a place, a place for lay people, a place for women, and on the outside perimeter down a series of stairs, there was like an observation deck where the Gentiles could come and marvel at what Herod had built. But along that structure, there was placed stone inscriptions in Latin and in Greek. 
And it said, no foreigner shall pass this point under the pain of death. You can look, but you can't touch. You can see the architecture, but if you think about worshiping God here, forget it. But Paul says, Christ breaks down that wall of hostility. He's our wall of peace, and he has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. It's no longer a temple where we go to worship God. Amen? What's the temple now? We'll see next week that we are that temple. To a sneak preview, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, if you want to understand the reconciliation that comes through the gospel, we need to understand that the temple worship is now here. It's us. The dividing wall, the the racial lines, all of those things are torn away because he himself came to be our peace. Verse 15 explains a bit of how Jesus did this. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may make himself one new man in place of the two. He breaks down those, those ritual laws, right? He didn't throw out the Mosaic law. We still have to obey God's laws. But he's broken down those, those ritual requirements. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11 says, here, as in, in the church, in this new man that we are, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. The new book that I mentioned, John Stott refers to this new entity as God's new society. See, as a church, we need to understand that as Christians, we're not added into Israel. Israel's not outside and being added back into this church thing. It's a new people. It's a third and new entity that Christ has created, his church. To illustrate this briefly, I want to share with you an experience that I had in uh, our church in Honduras. Church in Honduras, if you were to bring a visitor, you may be called on from the elder leading, leading the service to introduce your guest. Say, please stand and introduce your guest this morning. On one particular occasion, wouldn't that be awkward? We won't do that. On one particular occasion, there was a, a couple sitting behind us that shared the same skin complexion that we did. And so the elder says, hey, Matthew, would you like to introduce your guests this morning? And I'm like, I, I would, but I don't really know who they are. They just happen to have the same skin tone as I do. And as we um, unraveled that circumstance, we learned that this, this guy who came to church was an American who traveled to the Peace Corps in Russia, met a wife, and he and his Russian wife had moved to Honduras, were invited to church by somebody that played soccer with them, and through their time in our church, came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Ironically, I couldn't really speak very well with the wife because um, her English wasn't great, and my Russian's substandard, and so we spoke to each other in Spanish, this third language, right? And what a beautiful picture of what the church is. We come with different backgrounds, We come with different ethnicities. We come with different families of origin, with different baggage. But guess what? Here, we're family. We are all now one new race, God's new society. That's biblical race truth. 
We're not going to have time to get through everything today, but I, I want to touch on verse 16 to, to help us bring some application to where we're at. Verse 16, Paul says that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. See, we need to understand that reconciliation first happens vertically. Us with God, we were far off, right? We've got that. We're understanding this. We were far off from God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and on, Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That alienation that we had from God, we've been reconciled through the cross, through his blood, through his body, and put into one body. So if that's the case, and we've been reconciled vertically with God, that now requires us to have horizontal reconciliation, a reconciliation amongst those who are now in, in Christ, in this church, in this new race. In the Beatitudes, Christ lays out some poignant words. I'm not going to lie, this is a hard one. Christ says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There has to be gospel reconciliation in the church. Are we going to offend each other? Yeah. Are we going to hurt each other? Yeah. Are we going to fail? Yeah. But the call is to be reminded, as Paul does time and time again, remember what you once were? Remember what you would have been? Remember what Christ has done for you. And based in that, Fix it quick. Be reconciled. That applies not just racially. Maybe we're not a church that struggles with racism. I pray that we wouldn't be. But in our hearts, we still need to be reminded time and time again of the importance of being reconciled to one another because Christ reconciled us with God the Father through his blood. I want to end with, with sharing um, some heavy words that you might be encouraged and compelled to put this into practice. This is from the John Stott book that you'll soon be able to check out in the library. John Stott says, even in the church, there is often alienation, disunity, and discord. As Christians erect new barriers in place of the old, which Christ has demolished, racism, nationalism, tribalism, and personal animosities provoked by pride, prejudice, jealousy, and unforgiving spirit and divisiveness can come in to, and contradict the unity and universality of Christ's church. These things are doubly offensive. First, they're an offense to Jesus Christ. How dare we build walls of division in the one and only human community in which he has destroyed them? It's an offense to Christ. Secondly, he says, what is offensive to Christ is also, though in a different way, offensive to the world around us. It stops people from believing in Jesus. God intends his people to be a visual model of the gospel, to demonstrate before people's eyes the good news of reconciliation. But what good is gospel outreach if it does not produce gospel churches? 
It is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus, by his cross, has abolished the old divisions and created a single new humanity of love, while at the same time we're contradicting our message by tolerating barriers within our own church fellowship. I'm not saying that a church must be perfect before it can preach the gospel, but I am saying that it cannot preach the gospel while doing nothing about its imperfections. May God in his grace allow us to be a church free of those divisions. May we be multi-generational. May we be multi-ethnic. May we be all one because of what Christ has done for us. And I want to close with this one last passage from Revelation chapter 7. This is the picture of what it all will be when the kingdom comes. One church bought by the blood of Christ, one kingdom, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's as relevant and as convicting, as holy, and as cutting as it was the day that Paul penned them. Thank you, God, that this eternal word requires us, obligates us to change in response to your grace and mercy. May you make us a church that effectively lives out grace and mercy before a watching world, that we would be constantly mindful of how, what you've done to fix us. We are no longer alienated from you but we've been brought near. We've been reconciled. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts this morning for coming to the table together. We pray that as we remember what you've done for us, it would also compel us to live as a church that honors you in all that we do. Because of your grace, because of your mercy, because you alone are worthy, we thank you and praise you. Amen.